The old tagline used to be, find your genius, what you're good at. And I think it sets people up for a little bit of failure because what they realize is when they're at work and work becomes hard and difficult, they immediately say, well, it's clearly not my passion because it's hard and I don't love it, or I'm not great at it, so I haven't found my genius. And I think the right tagline is build your genius. What's up, everyone? I'm Paul Rabel, your host, professional athlete and co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League, and this is an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. And on today's show, I sit down with Scott Galloway. He's the head professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. He's also a nine-time entrepreneur, two-time best-selling author. He's a public speaker, an email pal of mine, and repeat guest on the show. And if I were you, I'd consider taking out a notepad because it's one of the best shows I've done. And we discuss all different items having to do with his latest book called The Algebra of Happiness. And he gets super granular and, as always, backs his notions by data. Here's a couple of things we talk about. Choosing your career, which doesn't necessarily have to do with following your passion, being agile around that so that you can aggregate economic success. And then he gives us tactics on building that wealth. Secondly, we talk about how to cut out the bad stuff, find the right partner, ultimately defining true love, which he equates to happiness. So there's a ton in here. You'll enjoy it, hopefully as much as you have so far this new season of Student Up Podcast and my other guest. But without further ado, here is the world-famous Professor Scott Galloway. Testing one, two, three. All right. You're pretty good at podcasting now. Yeah, getting better. Really good. Yeah, you. thanks for that. When we were yeah. here together last in this office, yep. it was 2017. Yep. And you're my first return Student Up Podcast guest. That's right. Guest. Number two. Let's go. Do I get a jacket? <laughs> What are, no, what do I no, get? but I do have. Um, hold on. Yeah, we do have two Premier Lacrosse League oh, t-shirts. Nice. Huge. There you go. There so you go. One is uh, "We the Players," which nice. is a PLL mantra. Good. And the other is just the PLL logo. The logo. There you go. Very nice. Yeah. It's very macho and very like come home with your shield or on it. There you go. So not a jacket, but I like it. I I'm saw. In. I saw uh, in your podcast you were recording with Kara. It was a live podcast for um, Pivot, hosted yep. by Recode. Yep. And uh, in Vox, you were wearing a, a Navy hockey shirt. I was. A friend of mine's son is uh, is the goalie for the Navy hockey team. Yeah. 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 So you you uh, you give props around people in your network. So that's right. You know, maybe maybe next time. Really trying to support the Navy hockey team. It's just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll wear this. I'll wear this. I'll you know I, I won't take it off. <laughs> Occasionally to wash it, but that's it. I'll stay home. So for uh, it was it was one of our most downloaded shows. Uh, so I'm excited to sit back down and and you've done a lot since we last sat. Yep. Um, first quick quick rundown. Nine time entrepreneur, professor at NYU yep. Stern. Uh, we talked at the time about your best selling book, The Four. Yep which is about the, uh, the major tech platforms, the impact uh, on the industry and society. Um, and today we're going to talk about a book yet to be released, but it's going to yeah. release this May. That's right. Called Anytime. The Algebra of Happiness. Yep. I would imagine that your publisher, though... Um, Pissed off. Yeah, because yeah. you talk about everything. And usually in writing, you have to yeah. have one topic. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> so even more than that, the way books... The, I was new to the industry of books. The four is my first. But the way book publishing works is... You put out a book, and if it does well, and our, it's better to be lucky than good. Our timing was strong, so the book has sold well. And your publisher calls you and says, we got to write another one right away. And right. I said, 
well, I don't really have a, a vision for, for t- another tech book. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Just put out something called The Five, just whatever. <laughs> just because the what happens horseman, is yeah. the channel, the, the, the pump is prime. The channel wants something else. So they asked me to do another tech book. And I said, well, I'm going to do another book, but it's going to be on happiness. And they're sort of like, pause what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> what do you know about happiness? So yeah, they weren't, they weren't that thrilled about this. Uh, but, uh, it's something I've wanted to do for a while, but yeah, it's a sharp left turn. And one of the other things we, we had mentioned, uh, pivot, but when we had discussed, uh, this medium specifically on our last show, I, I knew you were going to venture into it, but how did you end up with Kara and basically that, that concept, which is a every Friday show, 30 yeah. minutes digestible. Yeah. It's funny. It's informative. Yeah, it was really Kara's vision. I was a guest on her show, Recode Decode, yep. and the show did well, and it was dead. She told me it was the most downloaded uh, podcast they had ever done, and she's had Zuckerberg and a bunch of people. So they invited me back, and then they said, do you want to do this weekly? And for me, it's really an exploration of learning. I don't get this medium. You were actually in this medium pretty early, right? Somewhat. 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 How long have you been doing suiting up? About two and a half years. So that's pretty early for podcasting because it's, and it's still a small medium, only 500 million in total business. It grew 40% last year. But the interesting thing about podcasting, and I'm sure you're finding this, is that it over indexes on young and wealthy, which is what all advertisers want to reach. And the other thing about podcasting is the ads seem less offensive, less interruptive. So it's an interesting medium. I wanted to learn about it. It's been interesting. I do, you know, I do a couple others, yours included, but it's something I had no preconceived notions of how you're supposed to do a podcast. You know the origin of native advertising, which is the the type of read that podcast. Is it Howard Stern? It's Howard Stern. Oh, there you go. There you go. Boom, correct for 20. Oh my God. Howard Stern. That's right. Go buy my book, bitches. God, how did I get that right? Uh, Let's yeah. end this now. Thank you very much. And today's guest, Scott Galloway, clearly brilliant. Uh, yeah, so he he was the and first one. And then Rush one. Limbaugh, right? With his, like, by, I don't know, Probably. Confederate flags or whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever he was pitching. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't listen to him much. But uh, Howard uh, was, was actually, he was uh, towing the line and almost kicked out at the time he was with CBS or whoever it was, because he was refusing to read ads that were coming through because he thought they were so So bland. Um, and then he just started talking about that on his show as he, as he did. And, uh, at first there was pushback because he wasn't reading the lines. It got approved by the advertising team and agency and so on. And then the ratings for them went up. Yeah, uh, and then well, the FTC stepped in, and they said you have to, to articulate when it is an ad. Right. Yeah, but if you, you know, you love brands. I see you wearing brands. You approach a lot of the brands that you like as as sponsors. There's something to a host reading something that they're into, and so it 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 works well. It's um, the ads feel more organic and again less interruptive and less offensive. So it's a great medium. We'll see where it goes. The other thing about the medium, too, is, and it's in line with what we're seeing Instagram do and YouTube and Instagram with uh, IGTV and YouTube now changing their algorithm to promote total watch time. So if you yeah. can keep people on a video and you're seeing some of the vloggers now shift now to 15, 20-minute vlogs yeah. uh, and IGTV, obviously, long form, trying to keep people on there. What's powerful about this form is, or in, in any form, is when you can have a conversation with someone and it's yeah. interesting for an extended period of time yeah. in a very ephemeral world that's yeah. getting shorter and shorter in time spent through yeah. consumption, it's, it's pretty powerful. So Yeah, and just, a, I mean, there's so many things that 
foot well to growth in podcasts. All the two thirds of the economic growth is happening in cities. Most people can't afford to live in the cities, so people's commute times going up. It's nice ambient listening into work, and I think especially among uh, you know your generation, it, people. People, A, they want to be entertained, but they also want to learn such that they can be better at their job. And podcasts do a pretty good job of uh, you know, increasing your currency in the marketplace. You can learn a lot. Yep. Uh, so, Cool. So let's talk about the book. Yes, let's. I, I shot you a picture over text holding yep. this book, and you said, you're an influencer. I could feel the sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I'm like, it's a pretty low bar. We must have sent out thousands of these things. <laughs> I'm like, what, Rabel's on this thing? Anyways, uh, but so yeah, we, they send it out to quote-unquote influencers. So clearly Penguin Portfolio Random House, which by the way, rolls right off the tongue. That's a great name for a publisher. Uh, they clearly have decided you're an influencer. So I expect this this book to just take the lacrosse world by storm. <laughs> just, this is the new, I mean, shoe dog, history of Nike, blah, 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 yeah, by yeah. the algebra of happiness. Yeah, well, notes on the pursuit of success love and meaning yeah uh, so you cover a lot and, yep. and I want to start with the basics yeah and this is some stuff that again starts with your no mercy no malice newsletter yep. but you also say this is the most important part of your coursework yep. that you do on an annual basis with your 400 plus students that yep. come through NYU Stern uh, and it's spending time on the emotional side in a world where artificial intelligent machine learning continues yep. to uh, indent industries. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the catalyst for this was the last class. Uh, my last class session is called the algebra of happiness and kids come to business school because they want to get a certification. They want to make more money, but the net of that, or the, 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 the second order effect of that is they want meaning in their life and they want to be happy. And so I started in my last class as I got more confidence uh, breaking down a series of algorithms and saying, hey, these are my observations. I'm around a lot of successful people. Some are happy, some aren't. I've tracked a lot of you over the last 17 years as a professor, trying to figure out who's happy and who isn't. And personally, it's just a pursuit, uh, trying to understand how I make you know, the most of the, the remaining time I have here on this planet. And I, I, you know, I feel it's important whenever I do one of these podcasts to sort of the fine print is, I have no academic credentials or domain expertise in happiness. I'm not a social psychologist. I'm someone who thinks about this stuff a lot, and I've done a decent amount of research on other people's findings. But um, this is essentially the first couple chapters of the book are the algorithms I present to the class around my observations around people who not only are happy, uh, happiness is sort of a bit of a misnomer here because happiness is a sensation. And Chipotle, Netflix, and Cialis will bring you short-term happiness. <laughs> It, this is about how do you build a narrative such that the base of your life feels a little bit more rewarding and that regardless of the hits you take, regardless of the maybe short-term sensations, you always return to the bottom of the pendulum and the bottom of the pendulum feels pretty good. And so it's a popular class. I did a video called The Algebra of Happiness. I got a couple million views, yep. which is always a great kind of proxy for what might work in the marketplace. And I decided to write something and pull together a lot of uh, the Friday posts I do on on personal matters and success, love, yep. health, and then string together some connective tissue. And that's, that's the book. Yeah. And, uh, one of the first things that you reference often is graduation speeches yep. and how those are, uh, skewed towards motivational, directional, uh, want to give that bit of a dopamine release. Uh, and so this is, uh, maybe my segue into one of the first points, which you often emphasize around work ethic 
and staying thirsty. But essentially, and I've used this quote in a speech of my own, uh, sourced it to you, but yep. the world does not belong um, to the strong, belongs to the fast. And, yeah, agility yeah. and resilience. But yeah, the most popular, uh, so the most popular speech ever, uh, graduation speech, was Steve Jobs saying, uh, you know, f- uh, find your passion, do something you love. And I get that, uh, but I would argue, and everybody at NYU, every speaker ends with find your passion. And I always find it somewhat, uh, you know, a little bit ironic because typically the the guy on stage who's a billionaire and the reason they're there talking and been invited to tell us to follow our passion is because they're a billionaire. And they usually made their billions in like iron ore smelting or software as a service for healthcare maintenance workers. And it's like, when you were eight, that's what you really wanted to do. So, you know, my sense is, and this is weird to say to an athlete, because you've managed, you're one of those 0.1% of people that has managed to make a really good living actually following your passion. I would argue that the other 99.9% of us, that we have to find something we're good at I mean, it used to be, the, the new tagline is find your passion. The old tagline used to be find your genius, what you're good at. And I think it sets people up for a little bit of failure because what they realize is when they're at work and work becomes hard and difficult, they immediately say, well, it's clearly not my passion because it's hard and I don't love it, or I'm not great at it, so I haven't found my genius. And I think the right tagline is build your genius. And that is a young person's um, responsibility is, how do they find so to find something they're good at? And you may not be great at it. There's very few people that are immediately great at anything. And they find something you're good at, then start investing in it and really soak time, energy, and discipline into becoming amazing at it. And then the accoutrements of being amazing at something will make you passionate about it. The, no, one, no one dreams of growing up to be a tax lawyer. But the top 1,000 tax lawyers in America fly private, have amazing lives, I have economic security. We are in it. We live in a capitalist society and the accoutrements of being outstanding in something and having economic security mean your kids are going to have more opportunity. It means that you're going to do, get to do, you're going to have better health care. You're going to have more options. You're going to have a greater selection set of mates. So your job, I think, and I'm assuming that someone wants economic security and there's a lot of people who decide, I just want to be a chef. It's what I was born to do. More power to you. Go for it. But when people generally think of passion, they think, well, I've got to do something I absolutely love. And I would argue, you know, work is work. And that if you haven't immediately come out of the gates as someone who's a great athlete or someone who is born to be an actor, you know, I thought when I was younger, I was either going to be in entertainment or, you know, my my dreams of being an athlete were kind of decided at about the age of nine. But you the, wrote in college. There you go. <laughs> what all the failed athletes do. Oh, you're tall, and you've been cut from the baseball, the football, and the swimming team. Come row crew. That's what they say about lacrosse, too, though. <laughs> Literally, though. Literally, it was like, oh, you're stupid enough to get up at 530. Come, come row crew. Anyways, but the, the key is kind of build your genius, get great at something, and the accoutrements that come along with it will be, you know, you will make you passionate about whatever it is. There is sort of this emerging industry around struggle porn, which is sort of the Gary V. you need to work a million hours a week, work yeah. for free, be unhappy. I don't buy into that either. You shouldn't hate what you do. If you hate what you do, give it 30 days to make sure you don't still hate it. But they do call it work for a reason. And uh, the kind of follow your passion thing, I think, is a little bit dangerous. Yeah. You said uh, a lot of people refrain, it, and, and they probably shouldn't, from saying that you know, your, your work years, whether you like it or not, begin right after school if you went to college. And 
uh, expect three decades, four decades or so of 60 to 80 hour work weeks if you want to reach that level of economic security? Well, that's, that's a lot, but I would say at least one decade. And again, I'm making an assumption that your goal is to be economically secure. And the majority of the kids I come in contact with, when I say to them, all right, where do you want to be on the income ladder? Uh, the, you know, the medium household income in, in America, I think, is 58 grand. You know, you get into 100 grand, 150 grand, you're already in kind of the top quartile. 200 grand, you're in the top 10 percent. I mean, and most when you talk to people, especially people in New York, you meet are ambitious. They'll tell you, yeah, I expect at some point to be making a half a million, a million bucks a year. And I say, yeah. well, okay, that puts you into kind of a weight class of the top 1%, if not the top 0.1 at some point. And my observation is the only way you get there, and by the way, that, that isn't for everybody. You know, you don't have to be make that kind of money to be happy. But if you really want to do that, you're going to have to pretty much focus on work and little else through your 20s and 30s. I have met very few people. You know, some people are just in, are incredible geniuses and can have a food blog, volunteer at the ASPCA, have great relationships, work out every day, and are also so hugely successful that money just falls into their lap, assume you are not that person. Because if you are not willing to really be focused on work, and and by the way, it's a huge trade-off. It's not, I'm not saying it's the right thing. It's, it cost me a lot um, in my 20s and 30s. I always say it cost me my hair in my first marriage. But if you aren't willing to make those sort of sacrifices, you need to wrap down your expectations around your economic weight class. So I'm not saying it's the right way, but it's if you are, if you do want to be in the top 1% economically, you should probably plan on doing uh, working primarily, you know, uh, that's your primary focus kind of in your 20s and 30s. Now, I have a lot of balance now, but it's because I worked my ass off when I was your age. I don't remember a whole hell of a lot other than working when I was your 31. 33. 33. Jesus Christ, you're old. That's well, we, like fucking ancient in sports. Yeah. That's literally, <laughs> you're literally, you should, you, that's like having a walker in the world of sports. Yeah, yeah. You could slip and break a hip right now. So, yeah, or slip a disc. Like that's right. Totally. Uh, yeah. So it's, but when you get to, when I was, yeah, look, when I was your age and you're doing this, Paul, you're, you're, you're humping it. I can tell you're working all the time because you're trying to build, you're trying to be relevant, trying to build economic security for yourself and your, you know, your future family. And that's what you should be doing. I think that, in a capitalist society, it sounds it sounds scary to say, but economic security is really important. Yeah, and uh, I think it's I think it's just you just have to acknowledge up front there's a trade off, and hey, you want to be in that top ten percent, much less the top one percent. You know, get ready to work. Yeah, I think that's uh, really sound practical advice, and what I've found personally too, and and with my relationships and so on, is that uh, that acknowledgement ahead of hand, ahead of time of okay, if if I want to make a half a million or a million dollars in New York City, it's going to require this amount of work, yep. helps with anxiety, helps with stress, helps with uh, you know imbalance to a degree because we are often, those, those three things come into our lives when our actual selves are not you know on a, on a practical slope with our ideal self. Yep. And so if you're out there and you want to make a million bucks, but you don't know you have to put that hustle in or no one's told you that, and that's, and that's a big piece around you're mentorship and education, yeah. then, then you just think it's going to happen at some point. It won't. Yeah, I assumed, I, like a lot of people, I, I didn't. So there's a few things. I'll turn to some of the algorithms. It's a boring one, but you should try and save 10 to 20% of your salary uh, from the get-go. And saving $10,000 uh, 
a year or five thousand dollars a year from your in your twenties is the equivalent of saving a hundred thousand dollars a year in your forties. Most powerful force in the universe, as Einstein said, is compound interest. If you had a magic box and I said, if you put a hundred bucks in here, I'll give you a thousand back, but it'll be in twenty or thirty years. And by the way, you gotta acknowledge even though you're young and you think it's never going to happen, I can tell you from experience, 20 to 30 years happens a lot faster than you think. Hmm. So if you had that magic, magic box, what would you put in it? And you have that magic box. It's just called saving, for savings when you're a young person and putting it in Vanguard. Now, let's also talk about the relationship between money and happiness because there is a correlation. People say money can't buy happiness. Yeah, it can. But the relationship is nuanced, and that is there's a very strong relationship between money and happiness to a certain level. And that level is once you can afford sort of the basics and a little bit more. You have housing, can put your kids through school, afford health care, also afford to withstand a health care scare, have a nice car, and take nice vacations. Now, in Indianapolis or in St. Louis, that's probably 80 grand a year. In New York, that's 500 grand a year. So you have to pick, you have to be realistic about where you're going to be and what's required to get to a certain level of economic sustainability. Now, once you get to that certain level of economic sustainability, and it's really important, children in low-income households have higher standing dystolic blood pressure. Literally, income insecurity impacts not only you, it impacts your children. Hmm. But once you get to a certain level of comfort, it flattens. Now, people say billionaires are less happy than millionaires. No, they're not. That's a myth, too. But they're no more happier. Once you get to a point of a certain level of economic security, the relationship between money and happiness flatlines. So you want to start thinking about, hopefully, and you're in this position, or, okay, I have some economic security, what are the ends? Because the means is just the means of relevance and professional success and money are the means to the ends. And I find that a lot of us become so focused on the means that that's our total source of what we think is reward, just being more awesome professionally, making more money. And then you kind of wake up one day and you think, you know, my relationships aren't that deep and meaningful. I don't really have any hobbies. I don't feel as if I've really given back. You know, there's not going to be a whole lot of echo once I'm gone from this earth and I, don't, I, don't, I haven't really built a, an air of satisfaction. So I think you want to start thinking about that stuff sooner rather than later. What gives you joy? Who are the people whose lives you want to improve in your life? How are you investing in your in, in your relationships once you start getting to that point of kind of economic security. But there is a relationship between money and happiness. It just flatlines once you hit a certain level. Yeah. You, you touch on skill acquisition uh, and, and you encourage a lot of the folks who, who want to build on yep. their talent to get into yep. super cities. And you uh, drew an analogy to playing at the Wimbledon, even if you're going to yep. get your ass kicked by Rafa Nadal, being on court with him allows you to pick up certain techniques that he has and you know, you become a better tennis player. So another algorithm is that your economic trajectory is a function of two things. The first is your degree. We have a caste system in the United States, and it's credentialing. It's not just education, it's credentialing. So if you're in a union or you have an electrician certification, that is a large step to economic security. Even little certifications, a class two license, a cosmetology license, you got to get credentialed. And to tell people you have to get a four-year degree is a little bit pedantic from a from a professor i realize college isn't for anyone but a lot of my friends will say oh my son's thinking of dropping out da, da, da. maybe he'll be the next steve jobs or mark zuckerberg i'm like no assume your son is not that person <laughs> because the difference between people with degrees and not degrees is just staggering in terms of income opportunity so get a credential and then two the majority of the economic growth is in cities and it goes to your analogy about rallying with the best players when you live in new york city 
when you live in San Francisco, when you live in a major city, you're bumping off very talented people. The bar is higher. People are more focused on success. You have a greater density of opportunity and interesting people who can join your company, who can hire your firm, who can sponsor your new league, right? So putting yourself in, I mean, you know this way, when you play, when, when you play with better players, you're just better yep. because A, they motivate you, you're more, and they make you look better. You just all of a sudden turn into a star yourself. I mean, nobody, look at the guys on the Bulls who are considered stars. Once kind of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen were gone, I'm not sure they were the same players, right? right? So being around the best players in the world just makes you better. And when you're in a city, you are, like you said, you're rallying with Nadal and you're just going to get better. Well, I have a question. We were talking before we pressed record on executive hires and whether it's, you know, Tim Ferriss or Gary Vaynerchuk or other folks that you had referenced um, talking about surrounding yourself with the amalgam of five people that you aspire to be like. Um, or if you're Mark Zuckerberg, who said this before, he looks to hire people who are smarter than him, Yeah, you know, whether he's being oh, sure. authentic or not. Yeah. Um, that is a message that gets passed through. And as a co-founder of our business, we look to do the same. Very few people talk about why someone who's smarter than you, yeah. who ostensibly has that same awareness and, and wants to be around people smarter than her or him, yeah. would then go work for that person who allegedly is is a little bit more inferior. There's a regression with your peer group to the mean. And what we mean by that is take the five or eight people you hang out with most, pick the mean in terms of character, how strong their relationships are, and how much money they make. And you will you will logically move up or down to the mean of that group. And the action item here is that when you meet high character people, when you meet successful people, establishing relationships with them is a nice benefit because again, take if if I didn't know you, and but someone said evaluate, I would say okay, tell me their college degree and where they live. That's the first thing I would do to look at you to try and guess your economic security. And then if they said, well, tell me about how they are, how happy they are, how successful they are in life, I'd say, well, tell me about their five closest friends, and I'll have a sense for how how successful they are professionally and personally. And the action item here is that, and it's not uh, aspirational, is I don't think there's anything wrong with pruning friends. I think if your friends from college are not adding value to your life, uh, are not successful personally, um, uh, and having gone to college with someone isn't a reason to stay lifelong friends with them. And it's always, the majority of the self-help books are always be open to new friendships. Yeah, that's half of it. But the other half of it is, you know, a couple of times I woke up in my 30s and I'm like, why am I friends with this person? And it's because, well, I went to college with them. That's not enough reason. You have to be willing, you know, be be prudent and thoughtful about the people you hang out with, the people you take guidance from, the people you want to have relationships with. And this goes to what I think is the most important decision anyone will make in their life. And the kids I teach think that the most important decision they'll make is the career they go into because they're totally focused on economic success. The most important decision you will make not only personally, but probably also economically, is who you decide to partner with your, your whole life, and that is your spouse. Economically, the worst thing that can happen to you is divorce, right? My divorce set me back economically a decade minimum. And wonderful woman, it wasn't an ugly divorce, but it just inevitably, when you get divorced, you're no longer splitting costs, you lose, call it at least 60%, 
and it's emotionally just takes you off track for a while. Today's episode is brought to you by Harry's, where all season long I've been traveling with my bespoke Harry's razor kit, and it's been keeping me looking fresh for television. And I know a lot of guys buy disposable razors when they travel, and Harry's is here to tell you that this summer you don't have to sacrifice quality for price, as they give you both, and it's just $2 per blade. And here's my special offer for Student Up Podcast listeners. Join the 10 million now who have tried Harry's. You can claim this offer at harrys.com forward slash Rabel, and this is the deal. You get your own Harry's trial set, which comes with a weighted ergonomic handle a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover, all for my listeners on the show. And you can redeem your trial set at harrys.com forward slash Rabel. It's that simple. So go to harrys.com forward slash R-A-B-I-L today to redeem your offer. I remember when when we first met, we connected over Twitter uh, because I was sharing a lot of uh, your tweets, and then I just asked if you would come on my show and to my surprise you said yes and you gave me your email yep and i emailed you probably three pages worth of what i was going through personally with that which at the time was a divorce yeah and we built our relationship around yep. you giving me advice around having gone through your divorce now after a year you think you're fine and it's really about two years that you start feeling okay again and but it is the most important decision you make so then it becomes comes down to well what's the algorithm for making the right decision and what I found is that there's three things. The first is uh, attraction and affection. You know, sex and affection make the relationship singular and as a way of saying to someone, I choose you. And it's really important. But that's what most young people focus about 90% of their selection criteria on. The second is values. What's the role of her parents and your parents in the life? Where are we going to live? Are our kids going to grow up with some sort of religious indoctrination? What are your political values, right? But some of these things can really, if you don't get along with her parents and she's hanging out with mom every day, that's an issue and you need to establish up front. What is the role of our parents and all? I have great friends who are very much in love and they got divorced because he just assumed they were going to move home to Ohio and hang out with their family all the time. And she just wasn't going to do that. What, what is your approach around some key things around family, religion? And then the third thing and the number one cause of divorce, money. What is your expectation around money? Who, who's going to make it? How much do you expect them to make? Are you both making money? What is the weight class you expect to be in from an expenditure standpoint? Number one source of divorce is agita around economics. So these three things, the partner, I have friends who are somewhat successful, not that successful, but have a real, not only a spouse, but a partner. We share values. We're a partnership. We're in this together. And there's a wonderful source of mutual support and, and love and pulling for each other. They are happier than I have a lot of friends who are hugely successful, have someone they love, but it's not really a partnership. They're not really synced up on kind of key things. So... You know, your 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 the attraction, the physical part, huge, but values and an open, honest conversation around money because it is the most important decision. Just as you know, building economic value when you enter into a monogamous relationship, households, the the households that increase their wealth are the ones where there's two people. You know, one plus one equals three, fighting for the same thing. When I was single, I was focused on other things, mostly meeting women, and so things like 
dating, things like traveling to fabulous places, things like alcohol that gave me the confidence to meet women, these things get in the way of your economic trajectory. And I'm not saying they're not great. I'm not saying they're not, they're, they're not a lot of fun. But typically speaking, being single is not the place you aggregate economic success and relevance because you're fo- being good at being single is a full-time job. To be really good at it, it's a full-time job. You got to plan it. It's yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's you, you got to be, be good at it, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah, you're an entrepreneur. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. just like you have no time for dating. It, you know, if and you're it's trying it, to do it right. Yeah, being least. an entrepreneur and single, it's like literally, it's like get used to rejection. Um, <laughs> it's one and the same thing. But partner, partner is the most important decision you'll make, and I think those are the three things. And that's one of the algorithms around picking the right partner. Do you think one of the biggest challenges? Because you spend ha- the back half of the book talking about love. And, and this dovetails right into it, um, is that societal expectations and norms and even, you know, uh, I, I've always felt like unfairly, um, you know, speaking to the degree that I can as a male, that uh, females have a maternal clock. And right. so with if, if you are religious and yep. you believe you know entering into wedlock so that you can procreate yep. is a part of it, there's a clock there. Uh, your couples therapist in your book, you uh, you gave his name's Boris. Yep. Um, he he had that told was you his that. name, Boris. <laughs> so you take everything you say seriously. It's like Boris. <laughs> this guy knows his shit. Think about it. He's from Russia. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. So he uh, so he he told you. To, I think you asked him what true love is, and he told you that it, it is a complete selfless act of putting everything that, that you keep close to you, uh, basically second to your partners and be willing to give fully. Um, and I got to imagine again, to the societal norms of trying to race to marriage by the time you're in your late twenties, early thirties, like that doesn't give the individual enough chance or time. In some cases, if you want to run and start nine companies, or if you want to build a lacrosse league in some cases to just, to, to go out and do both. But we're not talking about you here, right? We're not talking, we're tra- no, we're not. <laughs> no, clearly, if you want. I know someone so, who's building You're not credentialed in therapy, right? are you? <laughs> so I'll get a couple of things Boris said to me that really stuck was, you and I are both had the luxury of, when we went through our divorces, we didn't have kids. You don't have kids, right? No. I didn't have kids. So it's not like a, it's a divorce, but it's like a bad, a bad expensive breakup. Whereas divorce with kids, I want to be clear, that's a totally different ball game. Uh, the couple of things he said to me that really resonated were, I asked him what, what love is. He said, it's a willingness to kind of take the cards that are your life and just throw them up in the air and see where they land. It's a willingness to say, okay, your mom is sick. You want to be near her. her. We're going to figure out a way to move to Houston so you can be closer to your mom. When you have nothing going on in Houston, you don't want to live there. And I'm just using that as an example. And what I recognized was at that age, and I don't know if it was my immaturity or the fact that I didn't feel strongly about the partnership, I didn't like my wife controlling the radio in the car, much less a willingness to kind of change my life to meet her happiness. The other thing he did was he did a simple test. When I was in therapy with uh, my ex, I would constantly say, you know, I think so much of this person. I think she's so wonderful. She's been so good to me. I'd really like to work this out. And he said, Scott, that's great. You don't have kids. The world's not going to end. It's not a moral crime to split up. You know, imagine there's two cities. One is Marytown. And Marytown has all these wonderful things. It has security. It has economic security. It has partnership. You get to hang out. I mean, it has a lot of wonderful things. And then there's Singletown. And Singletown has some wonderful things too, right? Mostly for men, Singletown has different 
right? That's the primary. I remember my friends when we were getting divorced, they said, you'll never do better. And I'm like, I don't want to do better. I want to do different. And I know that sounded very, very, very callous, but I'd gotten into a relationship very early in life. And I, you know, I, I decided I, I just wanted, you know, kind of what I'll call more. And he said, there's single town and there's married town. Where do you want to live? And he goes, and ignore if you're going to hurt somebody else. And that was, I thought that was pretty interesting and pretty callous. But he said, ignore it. Just where do you, being totally selfish, he goes, because if you don't acknowledge at this point in your life what you really want, those desires are going to bubble up and manifest themselves in pretty ugly ways. And I said, I'd rather be in single town. And I mean, I'm probably revealing too much. My wife looked at me at the time and said, let's get divorced. And it was the right thing for both of us. I don't know how we got on divorce. <laughs> we were talking oh about Oh, my love. God. Hold me, Paul. <laughs> Hold me. Hold so, me. But so, you talked about the clock, and this is how, this is how I, I ruined my career. But it's different for men than it is for women because the cruel truth of biology is it's, women do have a clock that's banging louder than men. Yeah. And I've always thought it analytically as a marketplace. I think if you're a woman, you want to put the odds in your favor. Mm-hmm. In New York, on a balanced scorecard, my friends occasionally complain about their girlfriends. I'm like, dude, on a balanced scorecard, I literally had this conversation with a friend of mine. I'm like, dude, on a balanced scorecard of looks, character, success, you're like a five. And I'm like, and you're dating an eight. Because in New York, if you're a guy, there's two and a half single women for every guy, you get to add two or three points. You're literally, whoever, if you're a guy, if you're not dating someone much better than you here, you have fucked up. <laughs> in San Francisco... Where there's more men and a lot of single men um, and not as many women, I think that it's flipped. And so when my sister, <laughs> after business school, said, I'm moving to New York, I said, no, you're not. You need to move to a city where the odds are in your favor, right? So I you got a to, lot of hate mail for this one, didn't you? Oh, I got total, like, <laughs> just ridiculous. But I'm like, why wouldn't you, if you want to surf, go to the place with great waves. If you want to ski, go to great snow, and it'll make you seem like a better skier. If you're a single woman or a single man... You want to move to where the odds are stacked in your favor. Mm. And I said to my sister, I'm like, there's no way you're moving to New York. It's a soul-crushing experience <laughs> for an interesting, attractive woman in her 30s. Uh, so anyways, but my point is move to where the odds are in your, in your favor. But it is, there's just no getting around it. The biology, the biology creates a different calculus for men than it does for women. Yeah. So when you, when you went to Singletown, and I want to touch on two more algorithms and basics, then we'll go back to... Uh, a morbid aspect of life, but uh, <laughs> uh, decided to sweat more, and uh, and you also decided to drink less. Yeah, talk about the quick algorithm on sweat more, which sure. I love the the image. We'll throw it up in the show notes. Sure, there you go. So I think a forward looking indicator of your success is the ratio of time you spend sweating to watching other people sweat, which I probably shouldn't tell someone starting a league. But <laughs> look, show me somebody. Show me somebody who works out and sweats and participates in sports four to eight hours a week and spends two to three hours a week watching appointment view, great sport, sporting events or goes to them. I'll show you someone who's successful at life. Show me someone who doesn't work out, doesn't sweat for an entire week, but spends two hours a night on ESPN and spends eight hours on Sunday watching football. I'll show you someone who has a future of failed relationships and depression in their life. So sports are amazing. But it's a, it is a part, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a participatory phenomena. And yeah. I, I worry that I think at some point people are going to start deciding that broadcast sports are not, uh, you know, it can be dangerous if it's totally out of whack with your ability to sweat. The, the one youth serum, the like one e-sports? youth serum, esports. Yeah. Oh gosh. I don't know. I think that stuff's scary, especially among young people, but yeah. the one Good. youth serum. 
the one and one of the keys to longevity is having daily active exercise in your life. It's just sweating is just it, it, the only use serum, a key component of life, a key component of happiness, absolutely a sweat. Drinking less. Drinking. So the Harvard Grant study, the, the most robust, broadest study ever done on people's happiness started in 1929. They, and to give you a sense of how people thought in 1929, they picked 400 males at the age of 19. <laughs> they didn't care about women's happiness. They're like, all right, if we're going to talk about happiness, let's be honest, we only need to talk about men's happiness. And they picked 400 guys and they followed them for 80 years until they all died. They had to have wow. changed principal scientists three or four times because they started dying. And wow. they did everything from measure, you know, they measured their, the, the, the pace of their growth to their weight. And every month they would reach out to them and say, do you feel happy? Do you feel satisfied? How's your life going? Measured all kinds of stuff, their food intake, their exposure to friends, their work life, their income. And what they found is was that... Uh, and I'll give you what they found was the biggest driver of happiness, but first I'll give you what they found was most prevalent in unhappiness. And the one factor that was most prevalent in people who were unhappy was alcohol, and that it was responsible for bad health, taking people off track, uh, le uh, increased levels of depression, and failed relationships. And it's not only what alcohol does to you physically, but your behavior when you're drunk, the risks you take when you're drunk. Uh, it, was, it was the one thing that was most common among people who, over the course of their life, had the lowest levels of happiness. So what I say to young people is, look, and this is do as I say, not as I do, because I love alcohol. Yeah. I just fucking <laughs> love it. I love alcohol. And I always say, like Winston Churchill, that I've yeah. gotten more out of alcohol than it's gotten out of me. Yeah. I actually think it's enhanced my life. My wife tries to get me to drink more. I'm a funnier, nicer version of me. I'm more affectionate. I'm more engaged. I'm kind of intense and angry, sober. But drunk, I'm a nice guy. <laughs> and she was always trying to get me to drink more. So I still, I really enjoy drinking. But there's just no getting around it. You people, Young people need to take stock of the relationship with substances. And my downfall in my period with substances was coming out of, I was, you remember that test you take in college? You take, answer like 11 questions and like, if, if it's, in the, you know, have you ever blacked out? Right. Do you ever get drunk, throw up and then drink again? Have you ever, I mean, all this shit, right? All right. these ridiculous things. <laughs> and I answered like in college, I'm like, nine of them were yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then the results say, if you answer any one yes, you're an alcoholic. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, so by any definition of the term, I was, I was an alcoholic in college. UCLA, you know, just boom, marijuana and alcohol pretty much every day. And then, but I got out of school, and I was able just to give it, mostly give it up. And then I went to Morgan Stanley, I was in New York, and the environment here, partying, great nightlife every night, opportunities to meet interesting people, and the lubricant for meeting interesting people was alcohol, and kind of the lubricant of nightlife here in New York was was alcohol. And I would get shit-faced pretty much every night, wake up in the morning, feel like crap, go into work, try and grab an hour of sleep under a desk in a conference room, literally, and then Damn. promise myself I was going to go home that night. I was working at Morgan Stanley in investment banking. And then around two or three, when the right mix of a greasy meal, Diet Cokes, and Advil kicked in, and I felt just inevitably like sane again, I just inevitably get the call like, Oh, we're parting downtown with a bunch of models. I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> and every night, every night I was going out. And finally I realized, you know, not having studied very hard at UCLA, 
made me a mediocre investment banker, but alcohol was making me a mediocre person. I wasn't investing in relationships. I wasn't saying I was in close touch with my mom. I, I wasn't working out as much. I was unhealthy. I was hungover all the time. So what I always say to kids is take stock of your relationships with substances. Are they getting in the way of your professional trajectory, your relationships, in any way in your health? And, you know, it's not just drinking. It's pot. I think pot is fantastic in moderation. Yeah. I think for a lot of people it helps their stress levels. It's great. But are you smoking every night and eating a lot of shitty food every night? Are you withdrawing from the rest of the world because you just want to stay home and watch, smoke pot and watch Netflix, right? So take a very honest assessment. And sometimes... I think the key is to ask other people who know you well if they think substances are in any way inhibiting your life. And if they are, try and address it. And the other thing, going back to what we were talking about in terms of um, divorce, Paul, is I think that when you have something happen to you, you know, success is a function of resilience over failure. Everyone knows failure. Everyone knows failure. Everyone will have businesses fail. Everyone will lose someone they love in their life. Everyone will not yeah, at some point, live up to the expectations you have for yourself. It just, it, it's a guarantee among everyone in their life. You'll have marriages. People will have marriages and relationships fail. They'll have businesses fail. The key is your ability to mourn and then move on. And I also think that it's easy to say that, but you have to give yourself a certain amount of time. I think with divorce, it's literally a year and then maybe two years until um, you're really back on your feet. But death in the family of someone close to you, a professional setback. But the key is after a certain amount of time, if you're not better or you really feel as if you're still stuck or still struggling from it, you got to get help. You got to reach out to people and you got to say, I'm struggling. I'm not getting on my, my, I've been taken off track. For me, it wasn't my divorce. It was upsetting, but it didn't, for me, it was the death of my mother that really took me off track. I was just very kind of upset about it. I found I wasn't as ambitious because for me, nothing good happened until I could call my mom. When I called my mom and told her, I got a great bonus at Morgan Stanley, or I got my first client, a profit my first company, she was so just over the moon proud that it cemented it. And when my mom was gone, it just I just wasn't as ambitious. Nobody in my life knew what was going on with me. So I could stay at home and teach a little bit, do a little bit of business, and like pretend to be a productive person. But no one knew I was just kind of out there floating, doing nothing with my life because my mom wasn't around any longer. And for a couple years, maybe even three years, I just kind of went nowhere. And it was because I lost, you know, I, I had lost my mom. And I wish at the time I had been more thoughtful to reach out to people who were struggling with loss and say, you know, my mom's death has really kind of taken me off track. I needed help yeah. and I should have reached out to people sooner. So success is the ability to endure failure and persevere, but it's also, I know a lot of people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who are hugely successful, and something bad happened to them at work. They, they experienced injustice. They got fired unfairly. Their VCs washed them out, and they ended up with nothing in their company. Their company got screwed. They, some, their wife or their husband unf, you know, treated them poorly, and they literally just never got over it just never got over it, never were able to get back up. You know, if you're looking for justice, you're not going to find it in relationships or in the work world. You will, you will get your fare of injustice, but the, the, the ability and willingness to mourn and move on and then recognize when you're stuck beyond what's a natural period of time and then reach out to others for help. Say, I'm stuck. I need help getting unstuck. And then the, the same study, the Harvard Grant study, 
you know, this is such a wonderful study, and it's it's kind of a lot of the a lot of the findings are a big part of the basis for the book. But the principal scientist who finally said, "All right, pretty much everyone's died. These guys have all gone. Now we can write up the we can look at this unbelievable data set of 400 men over 80 years from 19. I think the last one died at 99. Wow. And he said, "What do we find?" And they said. They, they, they had in this 80-page write-up, the first sentence was basically a summary of all their findings in the, in the, the line, and this is the greatest line I think ever capstoning a study. It said, it said, happiness is love, full stop. And all it talked about, it said, basically, the biggest driver of happiness, economics were meaningful, but what was profound was the depth and number of relationships. And specifically, not only what you got from relationships, but how much you gave. And that is, do you feel at work? Do you feel respected and admired? And do you respect and admire other people? To be the CEO of a company that everyone thinks is the man, but there aren't people around you that you can look up to and respect and express that respect and admiration for, they were less happy. With your friends, do you feel a sense of joy and camaraderie? But not only that, the happiest men are the ones where the people around them feel a sense of joy and camaraderie, right? And then finally, in your, with your mate and your spouse, do you feel a sense in your family? Do you feel a real sense of love and deep, meaningful support? And do they feel a sense of deep, meaningful love and support from you? It was those three things, the depth and meaning of reciprocal relationships and number of them across work, across your friends, and across your spouse and your family. Those were, that was the pillar of happiness. And it sounds so basic, but it requires a lot of investment. You Definitely. know, there was a period in my life where I selfishly just sort of withdrew, and I didn't really stay in contact with my friends. I was just very, you know, doing my own thing. And it's pretty easy how fast it is to withdraw and just find you don't have that many friends. I wasn't working a lot. I obviously didn't have a spouse in my life. And, you know, you just kind of realize you know, you can become an island. And being an island in New York, it's pretty easy because you have seamless and, you know, you kind of get everything you need and you can pretend to be relevant and working. And if you have a little bit of money, the economics don't get in the way. But what the fastest way to, to, to bring on early depression or, or early disease and death is to not be social and not be engaged in other people's lives because you're literally, your brain senses it and it sends out a hormone saying, it's time to die. You're no longer adding any value. Exercise fools the brain into thinking that you're hunting prey or building housing. Let's keep this person around. They're adding value. Being an intellectually engaged fools the brain into thinking, okay, I'm uh, making decisions for the clan. Okay, let's keep this guy or gal around a little bit longer. And the act of caregiving, loving others, is the key to the species. Hmm. So when you're involved in other people's lives and caregiving, Again, that hormone goes out that clears out the bad cholesterol, and you get to stick around a little bit longer. But isolate men when they're alone, they just die. The life expectancy of men who live alone is literally, literally 10 to 20 years less. Women do a better job when they're alone of engaging in other people's relationships. But a guy who's living alone and not engaged in other people's lives and, and not exercising, I mean, that is recipe for early departure. Yeah. Reciprocity was a big one that, that you talk about in, in giving love to others and the meaning that that, uh, that, that holds within and, and the reward that it gives. Uh, one of the things that I've learned uh, is that empathy gets tossed around and, and used a bunch uh, today. And uh, it's often 
uh, in the context of feeling for someone who's experiencing pain, sure. but there is such thing as positive empathy. And I've known, I've learned that that's a, a quick way an easier way to develop the skill is celebrating someone else's win with them. Oh yeah. You'll find that like, like me, I lacked empathy when it came to experiencing the moment with other people's pain because I also was a little bit jealous when other people on my team were doing well. Yeah. So I just, it, it's, it's really a full circle uh, experience. And so I would encourage people to, to try to think about positive empathy. And if you notice that people in the workplace or people on the field with you are, are doing well and your gut response is I should be doing that or I'm up next, then there's something to be addressed. Yeah, that, I like that term, positive empathy, because you're right, putting yourself in the shoes of people. You know, empathy at work is key for leadership, because I used to think, when I was a young man running a business, I just want to be awesome and rich, and everybody else just wants to be awesome and rich, too. So how do we all be awesome and rich together? We all want to be on the cover of Forbes, me first. We all want to be rich. I want to be the richest, but you can all be rich, too. That was my general approach to management. And what you learn is there's some people, yeah, money's important to them, but they want balance in their lives. And if they're important to the business, you want to put yourself in their shoes and go, I'm not like you, but I'm going to try and get you. And I'm going to try and figure out a way that you can be successful here, even if your definition of success might be a little bit different. The empathy for people who are going through difficult times, you know, you always, when anyone you know has professional success, I mean, I was so immature when I was young, but when someone wasn't successful, they got fired. It's kind of awkward, and you, they come, become a little bit radioactive, and you have a tendency to kind of withdraw from them. That's exactly the time you engage with them. Whenever I know anybody who loses their job, I immediately call them, and I say, oh, yeah, the fucking How do I help? Who can I introduce you to? Because that's when people need friends. People don't need friends when they're killing it. They got enough fake friends surrounding their success. <laughs> they need friends when, they're, you know, when they hit a roadblock, and yeah. everybody, everybody does. That positive empathy is really a great signal of maturities because I don't know about you, but when I was in my twenties and even in my thirties, when I was your age, I felt that someone else's success somehow was a zero sum game took from mine. Yeah. And that is if I, if someone else was killing it or more successful than me, that somehow it diminished my success. And I also wasn't secure enough to say to people, wow, you are so impressive. <laughs> That's just, and now when I come out of meetings, I try and tell people, even when they're senior to me, I'm like, you know, gosh, that was just so impressive. I, I wish I had the, that was really well done. And not like an attaboy even, but occasionally I just send, I'll send an email to somebody. And it feels weird because affection, not only physical affection, but emotional or verbal affection from men, sometimes uh, as young men, we're taught it's a sign of weakness or, uh, or, or homosexuality, yep. that was somehow you're less masculine and not recognizing, well, okay, now we've all learned, well, hetero or, or heterosexuality or homosexuality, that's not an indicator, you know, neither is ne more negative or more positive than the other. But among young heterosexual males, there's this fear that being affectionate intellectually, verbally, or physically is a sign of weakness or... If you're uh, affectionate, that you're using it as a means to get sex, right? So there's, we're taught not to be affectionate physically. We're taught not to be expressive emotionally and to praise other people because somehow it shows that we're weak. There's a lot of, sh I had a lot of Schadenfreude where I was very interested in hearing about other people's failures. And I don't like that about myself, but I'm kind of like, oh, did you hear so-and-so got their business failed? Did you hear, isn't that too bad? Yeah, it's really too bad. Tell me about it. What happened, right? It's just so pathetic. And, and 
as you get older, you realize that success is absolutely not a zero-sum game, that recognizing and saying, it's just so funny, you assume that people who are doing well get praise all the time, and maybe they do, but I'll tell you, people come up to me on the street now that I'm doing these podcasts, they see my videos, they will interrupt me at dinner, they'll come up to me and they'll interrupt me at dinner, I mean literally interrupt me and say, oh man, I love your podcast, or I love your video, and they high-five me, and and you know how it feels when someone just interrupts you in the middle of a dinner. Yeah. They don't even introduce themselves and they say, I love this. Or, you know how it really feels? It feels fucking awesome. <laughs> it feels incredible. And you're like, and I pretend like it happens all the time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, thank you. The person you're at dinner with is like, right, this right, happened like, all oh, the time. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> I literally, I like want to, I want to stand up and dance. It just makes me feel so good. And, I mean, you're a you know you're a professional athlete, so you must get a lot of praise, I imagine, and a lot of people who are high fiving you and giving you praise. But I find it's just it's just people underestimate how important it is, how much it builds people up. I find, especially with young people, something I never did enough when I was young people. Young people need watering, and that is sitting them down after they've done a great job and saying, you know, just very in a very analytical way, this is why this was so awesome. And also sitting down and telling them when they need to improve because they can sense it. And I think they'd rather have it unsaid as long as it's always actionable. Never criticize people, for th- I find, for things they can't fix. I remember once when I was a manager in 20, 29, I gave people a few. And I said to this young person, I said, you need to have more presence. It's like, how does someone establish more presence? I just should have never said that. Mm. That's like saying to them, I need you to be taller, right? <laughs> it's just so fucking stupid that I would say that criticism has to be actionable. It's like, well, how do I fix this? But sitting someone down, and I, I try every time now in the workplace, when someone does something that's impressive, I try to immediately pull them aside and go, that was very impressive, well done. And you know, young people, you can just see, they just blossom. People yeah. need reaffirmation. Yeah. Um, One more piece to that. If, if someone tells you your podcast was awesome and it made me feel great and I was able to relate to it because of this experience in my life, what do you say? Thank you. Yeah. You know, that, I, that the feedback feels great, and I'm glad, and I'm, um, it's very rewarding. And also, you know, I'm trying to be better about criticism. I, you know, people always say, my, my co-host, Kara, always says, oh, I don't care what other people think. I'm like, that means you care a lot. Anyone who claims they don't care what other people think, <laughs> that means they're radically insecure, and they get really bummed out and go home and, like, kick the dog and eat 40 pounds of, you know, thin mint <laughs> cookies or something every time they get criticized. When people come after me on Twitter, it bums me out. I, yeah. I don't, it's not like it bums, it bums me out less because I get so much of it now. <laughs> so I'm just like, okay, at some point I gotta, I gotta get used to this shit. <laughs> but when people, when people are just insane and they say stupid things at you, that's fine. But occasionally, you know, on a regular basis, something's the criticism of you that resonates. And usually when criticism hurts, that's when you usually know it's true. And I try and respond positively, and I try and say, thanks, I, I take it your criticism was heartfelt, and I'll take it to heart. But something I'm just learning, I'm just learning, is how to constructively take criticism and not get really pissed off and angry and get back in people's faces, yeah. you know, to get, you know, if I disagree, if they say something that I think was, to- if it's totally inappropriate, I, I ignore it. If it was, I thought, you know, wrong, I'll say, well, I don't agree, I, you know, but most of the time I say, well, okay, what, help me out here. What is it about this argument that you think is all, all wet yeah. or thanks for that? You're right. Um, my data was flawed, but yeah, I, God, I, I, I've, I've struggled with, uh, 
I get so angry at people when they criticize me, especially on Twitter. I'm curious for you, Paul. Let's 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 turn this around. <laughs> what? Um, how do you respond? Do you? I, I know very little about sports writers and lacrosse. If a sports writer or a commentator is critical, I mean, and these guys are pretty harsh, right? Yeah. They can be pretty rough. Yes. I know some people have said some critical things about the league. Like, how do you respond? Do you engage them? Do you write it off? Do you yeah. just let it roll off you? Does it bum you out? Yeah. Well, I think uh, a lot of it is is what you had recognized, which is there's going to be a ton of hate and and criticism. Most of it you can tell if it's just emotional yeah. because there's there's no actual feedback. Yeah. And then there's those that like a like a sports journalist, if you take a last second shot and you miss, yeah. And they'll ask you how you missed that shot. Yeah. Um, and my my instinctual response was typically defensive in that yeah. do you think i wanted to miss that shot yeah right like how could you question how i've yeah. practiced it a million times over yeah. and the last thing i was thinking about was missing it and i let my team down and now you're calling me out i'm right. embarrassed and yeah. you know so on and uh i found the most powerful thing for any athlete to do at least in that circumstance is say yeah it really sucked yeah like I practice that shot a lot yeah. and I miss it a lot in practice, but you know, I feel like I, I, you know, that was a moment to turn yeah. the tide and win the game and I screwed it up. And the response usually is like either that person you can see on their face immediately regrets asking that question yeah. or if that comment comes through on Instagram or Twitter, the next follow on to my response is I'm still your number one fan. I love you. Like, I'm sorry you missed that too. We're behind yeah. you. Go get them next time. Yeah. So it's just like acknowledging when you are wrong or you make a mistake, say that. That's what people want to hear. So another question. You're, you're 33. You're still pretty much – I mean, when do when – do, uh, like, when, when are you dumb? When, does, when, does, when do lacrosse athletes – like, in <laughs> football, 33 is old. In gymnastics, you've been out of the business for 15 years right. after 30 years. <laughs> 33. Like, what is the – what's the top of the – when, typically, when do world-class yeah. lacrosse players, their, their game just starts to go? What age? Well, it's a, it's a good question. So they're, just like any sport, we have uh, athletes who have been the best in the world play at 41, like so there are guys in, doing right now. There are guys in professional lacrosse that are playing at 40. Yeah, because it's a skill position sport, so you can figure out, like hockey even, so you how could, to be you impactful. You could reasonably go another 7, 10 years. If I were lucky. Yeah? Yeah. I, I've learned not to, to set those goals because then just like, in business, you you stress out over every detail trying to get to an end game that's seven years away. But let's let's assume you can see the end of this portion of your career. Do you feel insecure and nervous about the next stage and not having the accolades and the economics of your current career? Or are you just like kind of ready to exhale and move on to the next thing? I I still feel a lot of passion and love for the game when yeah. I'm practicing. Yeah. Um, I don't have uh, that like guttural yearning to prove myself yeah. as I did when I was a teenager or early 20, but yeah. I don't think any athlete does that plays into their 30s. Uh, but my mind is more strong than it was when I was in my yeah. 20s and teens. Um, and I can ration more appropriately my time on field in the weight room. Yeah. I handle injury better. Yeah, not great, but better. Um, and, and and frankly, like I just feel really lucky that uh, I'm in a position right now that can impact the pro game. Yeah, in a way that uh, has literally nothing to do with me being on field. 
Um, so that, that's like, when I think about where I am now, that, that gives me a lot of reward and and in a way has, uh, reduced my introspection around my self-worth if I were to retire. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah. Good. So anyway, appreciate you taking the time, man. This is this has been. You flipped it on me. Go, <laughs> I was like, right? "What's your next question?" <laughs> you're, like, you're like, "I forgot to I be was here. Those. <laughs> it's great to be here." A big second thank you to the prof for coming on the show. If you want more of that and his table turning interview style that we heard in the end, you can listen to Vox Media's podcast that he co-hosts with Kara Swisher. It's called Pivot every Friday. It's awesome. You can also check out Scott on The Daily by following him on Twitter at Prof Galloway and me at Paul Rabel, where we can continue this conversation. Or choose to be the first to listen to future episodes of the pod or catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation earlier this season with the greatest filmmaker on the planet, Peter Berg. His and all episodes of the podcast are available on Apple Pod, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And finally, a shortcut to show notes, talent, news, and headlines. That's on my website, suitinguppodcast.com. And to today's show sponsor, Harry's. Go to harrys.com forward slash Rabel to access today. Thank you all very much. Give me a rating and review on Apple Pods. It helps the show grow, and I will talk to you very soon.